Some things aren't always as they seem to be. I don't know if you're a fan of optical illusions, but I want to show you some things aren't always as you see. Let's put these up. First one, I don't know if you're like, what am I supposed to look at? Look at the horizontal lines. You know, they kind of, some go this way, some go this way, some go this way, you know, at the top, going up, going down. Well, actually, those horizontal lines are directly parallel with each other. They do not actually go up. They do not actually go down. They go right across straight. You see that? You see that? Tripping your brain out a little bit right now, as you see up on here? Yeah, do you see it? Right across. All right, let's put another one up there. Not always as it seems. If you move your eyes to the left or right, it makes it seem as if some of them are moving. I don't know if you can do it. Maybe look at the peripheral, and it looks like sometimes they're moving. And then if you focus in on one, then you're like, wait, it's not moving. But um, I think it comes up across better on a screen. You look at it, and you're like, whoa, it looks like things are, are is it moving for anybody? Are some of them moving? And then you focus in, but there's actually no movement at all. Things aren't always as they seem to be. It's sometimes tricky to be, what should I look at? What, what is the right perspective on this thing? I've got one final one. I want to know, what, what do you see when I put up this picture? What, what, what do you see? What come, first thing you see, last one. What do you see? It looks like a lady looking, young lady looking over her shoulder, right? Young lady looking over her shoulder. Some people see, I think a lot of people see a younger lady. Others, guess what? There's an old lady, actually. I don't know if you see it. If you look at the chin of the young lady, that's the nose of the old lady. And then the necklace is the mouth. Is anybody able to flip back and forth? Some, we were in here earlier, and Jose was like, I still can't see the old lady. Um, is, <laughs> I don't know if you can see. Maybe some of you are having trouble. But things aren't always as they seem to be. I mean, this one, first one is, oh, yeah, it looks like a young lady looking like this. But then you look a little closer, and you're like, wait, it actually looks like an old lady who's bundled up in, in like a fur coat here. And it's like, well, not always are things as they seem to be. One thing that I think we need to have a new perspective on look afresh, look new, is when it comes to money, when it comes to finances. You can put the head graphic behind me, Lucas. When it comes to wealth, money, riches, finance, we need a new perspective. It's easy for us to have certain things pop into our minds when it comes to money. What, what should our focus be? What, what should our perspective be on money, wealth, finances? And I think Society wants us to view money in a certain way, but I think God's word wants to give us a new perspective, one that maybe we wouldn't originally have, but we need the correction and the help from God's word to see riches, money, finances clearly. So look at James chapter 5 with me. We're going to take this verse by verse, um, starting with verses 1 to 3. Let's get this new perspective when it comes to wealth, starting James 5, verse 1, it says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Okay, so he's saying, hey, rich people, okay, are they Christians, non-Christians, maybe we're not sure yet. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He's writing specifically here to non-Christians, why should they weep and howl? Well, these miseries that are coming upon them is this future judgment. So, hey, rich people, weep, howl, that's almost like the noise that comes from this moaning, this grief, 
Why? There are miseries that are coming upon you. This future judgment. Whoa, does that mean that, that all rich people? Oh, man, I, I, should be, I better be poor then because if I'm rich, that means judgment's going to come upon me. And I should be, oh, maybe let's pump the brakes. Let's keep reading. It says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. That doesn't sound right. I mean, if you think of a really wealthy individual, their riches are rotted. It's like, no, they got a lot of money. Garments are moth-eaten. It's like, no, a, a rich person probably has really nice clothes. Got the fancy, you know, Gucci slides. Like all, all those nice, all fancy clothes. Like buying, not, not, not getting the, the good fellow at, at Target like I'm buying my clothes. It's like, no, they're going to the high-end brands. It's like, that's not moth-eaten. It's nice clothes. Verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded. If you think about it, gold and silver have corroded. Well, gold and silver don't really corrode. Don't really. What's going on here? And their corrosion, it says, will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Whoa, what are we even talking about here? Because you have laid up treasure in these last days. So it seems like from this passage, there are these rich individuals, these rich unbelievers who have their focus and their perspective solely, man, it's all about money. It's all about wealth. It's all about riches. They are focused on the here and now. How can I get the most things? How can I get the most stuff? Get all the moolah, you know, the highest paychecks that I can get. And the focus on the riches has caused them to not think about eternity and where they stand with God. So focused on the here and now. And it's saying, hey, rather you need the perspective from heaven, which is, hey, those riches, in an eternal perspective, it, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of rotten. Your garments, uh, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't really matter. And it's going to be moth-eaten just like that. Gold and silver, corroded. Oh, well, clearly that's not talking literally. It's talking figuratively, decay, rust of these precious metals, because in the long scheme of things, they do not really matter. Not important. James is saying that the rich unbelievers should fear, weep, howl this coming judgment because the wealth that they've stored up in this life is going to prove to be futile, prove to be vain, prove to be pointless. And we need this correction of, of when it comes to riches, when it comes to wealth, and need, point number one, to realize that wealth is short-lived. Wealth is short-lived. Part of the correction here in just these first couple verses, that you think this is so precious, you think this is so important, you think this is so valuable, well, think eternally, it doesn't really last a long time. I mean, even consider what we talked about last week about how our life is like a what? Life is like a vapor, like a mist. And I sprayed a little squirt bottle up here. It's like, that's how quick it goes. Like, well, the span of our life is 70, and by reason of strength, 80, we looked at that verse. It's like, well, I mean, that's, if we're rich monetarily, I mean, at the max extent, it's going to be 70, 80, if maybe really, really push 100 years. It really doesn't last for very long. And even, would we say, oh, wealth, does it last for even longer? Like, does it really last even the duration of our lives? Not, not really. It can go away so quickly. I don't know if you've ever seen um, like houses or water parks or malls that have been abandoned. Has anyone seen those? 
sometimes on, on the internet, and it's like, man, this hub, which was so great, or maybe it was like a, a fancy, rich house, a, a very luxurious place to live, or a, a popular mall in the day, or even like a ghost town, for example, where it was like, it was hustling, bustling, like a lot of commercial activity, a lot of commotion, buying, selling, transactions taking place, and how quickly that wealth, that money that flowed through there, was house city, how quickly it just turns to waste, turns to rot. I mean, there's some YouTubers who go and try to seek out these like abandoned places and go check it out, and it's almost creepy as they walk through them, seeing how it's dusty, cobwebs up in the corners, and these things and these possessions or these houses or the money that was we thought was so valuable, and guess what? I mean, 50, 20 sometime a year, 10 years, 100 it's like it really is short-lived, is not worth it, goes so fast. And you think how quickly wealth can turn to nothing, how, how quickly wealth doesn't even really matter. I mean, if I was to ask you, who, who's the, the richest American right now? I think a lot of you would know. Who, who do you think it is? Richest right now. Jeff Bezos, Jeff Bezos. Okay, so I think we're 50. How about this? A hundred years ago, who was the richest American? So 2023, let's go back to 1923. Richest. Some of you guys might be able to get this. Henry Ford. Henry Ford. hundred years ago. Oh, it's like, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard of those cars before. No, it's, like, it's like, oh, yeah, 200 years ago. 1823, who was the richest American? A guy named Stephen Gerard, or Gerard, sorry, I don't, I don't even know who this guy is. <laughs> you probably, maybe one of his, like, oh yeah, I know, he uh, did this. I, didn't even, I don't even know. But how quickly we think, oh, it's so significant, it's so important, it really matters. Maybe you think about your future and you think about your job and you say, man, whatever pays a lot. <laughs> Whatever, I can get the most things, have the nicest place to live, and how quickly that really doesn't matter, and we don't even consider it. 300 years ago, who was the richest person? It's like, I don't know. Not even sure. It goes so quickly. We shouldn't trust in wealth. We shouldn't trust in riches because of how futile it is. Quickly gone. Maybe you've had the thought, oh, man, my life would be so much better if I just won the lottery. I just, man, hit the jackpot. I looked up some stats on people who win the lottery, and there's kind of some contrary numbers. Some say 33% of people who win the lottery are bankrupt within a couple years. Others say 70%. So, I mean, I'll say it's somewhere in there. Maybe it's closer to 50% in the middle. I mean, half the people who win the lottery, I mean, think about it. Thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars. Like, oh man, they've got it made. Oh man, they're set for life. But yet, a couple years later, it doesn't last. It goes so quick. We need to seek something beyond this life. Not storing up riches in this life, but look into the next. I know I brought up this passage last time, but Luke chapter 12, I want you to turn there really quickly. Luke chapter 12, I think it's, helpful for us to repeat this same passage that we looked at last week again this week. The people that James is writing to, their concerns are centered on this world. 
they need to see, oh man, lavish living in this life, it's not worth it if it comes to forfeiting the next life. Luke chapter 12, looking at verses 15 to 21. It says, and he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do you allow your life to be defined or the quality of your life to be contingent upon your stuff, your possessions? Oh, man, I'm better than this kid because, oh, man, look at this car that my parents drive me to school in. Or, man, this person doesn't even have an iPhone. Like, come on. Really? Oh, they're wearing that to school? Really? Wow, okay. Is that who we care about? Oh, man, I wish I had more than this person, more than that person. We have to be careful that we're against, guarding against covetousness. It says, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, a lot of crops. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Maybe you've heard that. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Oh, whatever. God was so concerned about wealth, stuff, living up his life. Verse 20, but God said to him, you remember this one last week, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, those things you've stored up, the things you treasured, whose will they be? Not yours, somebody else's. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here at the end, he makes it clear, hey, not about having yourself amassing all this wealth. Rather, you need to do, and it's an interesting phrase here, you need to be rich toward God. What? Rich toward God? Does that mean that I need to give a lot of money to God? That's not what it's talking about. Does it mean, oh man, I need to, you know, have a lot of wealth so I can use it for God. That's not what it's talking about. Rich toward God. It's not about saying the treasure for myself, but rich toward, what are we talking about? I think this passage connects well with Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. You don't need to turn there, but I think you all know it. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So here there's, in Luke 12, in Matthew 5, there's this talk about rich and poor, and it's not talking to physical money or tangible things, that we should be rich toward God. And verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's tackle poor in spirit first. Poor in spirit. Does it mean happy are the people who don't have anything? Blessed, happy. Happy are the people who, you know, nothing. Well, it's not what it's hitting on. Poor in spirit. The person who is poor in spirit realizes that between me and God, I have nothing to bring to the table to make me right with God. God is perfect. He is holy. I am empty. Nothing about myself brings me closer to God. Nothing. Seeing myself, seeing my sinfulness, my own unrighteousness and saying, I am, I've got nothing to offer to God. See, it's not the person who, like we've talked about this passage before, who prays to God and God says, thank you, God, that I am not like this tax collector. Remember that passage? 
No, that's the person not poor in spirit. Thinks, oh, look at me. I'm the hot shot. I'm all great. I'm fantastic. No, it was the tax collector who said, God, forgive me a sinner. That's what it looks like to say, I am poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer to God for why he should save me. Nothing to offer. Spiritually bankrupt. Well, how can we be rich toward God then? It's not about us. It's not through me. By trusting in Jesus. Saying, I cannot bridge this gap between me and God, which is infinite. My sin, iniquities, made a separation between me and God. Nothing I can do to fix that problem. I need to trust in Christ. Turn from my sin. It is my sin that put me in this position to begin with. I have nowhere to turn but to God. God is merciful. God is gracious to forgive those who come to him. Rather than having our focus being here on this life, we need to, as this series is all about, look at the bigger picture and saying, it's not about being rich in this life, it's about being rich toward God, which is meaning I'm right with God through Christ. Don't live this life in pursuit of earthly treasures. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, you know this, you could quote it, you went through Rwanda. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, that kind of connects to our passage a little bit, and it doesn't last very long, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you treasure the things of this life, whether it's tangible things or it's sin? Money, possessions, living my life how I want to live, or you treasure Christ and what he's done for you and saying, I'm forsaking this life. I'm pursuing eternal riches in heaven. It's the first thing I think in James 5 that we need to see. Go back to James chapter 5. Let's keep reading. After James addresses these rich unbelievers, which, think about it, he is writing to believers. He didn't send this letter to unbelievers, so why is he now here addressing rich unbelievers in this letter that is to believers? Well, maybe there are some people that he is writing to, Christians, who we talked about this when we started the book of James, who it was these, these people who have been under serious persecution and are kind of scattered all about. And maybe they don't have a lot of stuff, and maybe they are under attack or being persecuted or don't have much because of the persecution that's taking place. So when we look at this passage and we say it seems like these Christians don't have very much. Doesn't mean it's wrong to have much as a Christian, but these that he's writing to in particular, and there's these non-Christians that have a lot, and maybe these believers are tempted to think, oh man, that seems like the better life. That seems way easier than what I'm going through right now. I wish I had it that way. He's saying, hey, the, the non-Christian should have misery for the judgment that's coming. You shouldn't be envious of that unbeliever. You should know the future of what's coming for them and say, no, it's, still, it's worth it. I shouldn't be jealous. I shouldn't be envious of the so-called prosperity that maybe unbel- that unbelievers have. 
James 5, 4 gives us some more context of why we think this is the case. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So potentially here we've got these rich unbelievers who have these laborers or these workers who maybe some of them are Christians, maybe some of them are not, and they're mowing their fields. And guess what? It says, which you kept back by fraud. So it seems like these rich unbelievers are, are defrauding or holding back wages that are due to their employees. So being dishonest, being fraudulent. And guess what? They're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. These wicked non-Christians are holding back pay that is rightfully due to like their employees. They're cheating their workers of pay. Well, God says, hey, I hear your cries. I know what you are going through. It's not I'm abandoning. No, I hear the cries of what you're doing. Rather than these rich unbelievers who are using their money and saying, I'm going to defraud people however I want to and save money for myself and not pay. Rather, point number two, we need to be an honest worker. You need to be an honest worker. I know not many of us, <laughs> none of us, are student-wise, I guess, are bosses of our own company. <laughs> I don't think you're in the situation of maybe these rich unbelievers who are, oh man, yeah, my, my, my employees are, you know, working hard and yeah, I know they should earn this much, but I'm not going to hold it back. It's like, I don't, I, maybe one of you has a startup company. It's like, I don't think we're in that position. But I think the principle of, man, they're not using the money as they ought to is, is helpful for us because we need to say, hey, the work that we do, we need to be honest with it. First, we need to be hard workers because God is our boss. God is the one who sees all things. Just like the, the boss of the company better run that company how God wants him to. Why? Because God's ultimately that guy's boss. Us, where we're at, we better work the tasks that we have been given by God because guess what? God is our boss. Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work heartily for your teachers, parents, and bosses. Is that, is that what it says? It's like, I don't know. I'm not turned there. You probably haven't memorized. Is that what it says? No way. It doesn't say whatever you do, work heartily as for your bosses. It says whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You need to have the perspective, as we all have different tasks and different jobs to do, that, okay, yeah, maybe I'm doing this task because my boss asked me to, or because my parents asked me to do this chore, or my teachers asked me to do this assignment, but I'm going to work hard and do it rightfully and honestly because God is my boss. He's in charge. Verse 24, it says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Why? Because you are serving the Lord Christ. You need to work heartily at your schoolwork, at your chores, your sports, your music practice, the things that you do. We shouldn't just give a half effort. The classic half a job Bob. You know, it's funny hearing Pastor Bobby say that in the main service last week. Is that, oh, I did half a job, half a job. It's like my dad would say the same thing to me growing up. Oh, I took out the trash. Yeah, take out the trash, Nathan. Okay, I took out the trash, threw it away, and then went back to my, to my room and is like, who didn't put a liner in the trash can? It's like, uh, I forgot. Um, sorry. Uh, 
some of you guys who use the task to, to take out the trash, it's like, oh, I know. And your parents are like, that's happened before. It's like, well, first, we've got to be hard workers. Say, not going to do half a job because, let's say, God said to you, hey, you are to take out the trash. I bet you would be doing the best you can. Okay, man, I'm going to make sure it goes and do it as best as I can. Take it out. Make sure there's a liner there. You know, you know look, make it look all pretty. You know, it's like the best ever that I could do taking out the trash. That's what I would do. If God told you, hey, I want you to clean the bathroom, it's like you're going to be scrubbing as hard as you can. You're not just going to, oh, yeah, Windex on the windows, yeah, whatever. It's like, no, you're going to polish it, you know, like, like, that looks pretty good. Oh, maybe a little bit more. It's like, you're taking this very seriously. We need to see, well, because God's our boss, we should take our work and our jobs seriously. Also, we need to work with integrity. Think about your school. Do you do it honestly? Do you cheat at your schoolwork? Copy other people's answers? Look at other people's papers? Or are we honest? We need to be people who are honest with our work. One passage in Luke chapter 16, not too long ago, we read this in our DBR, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. You start being dishonest now, down the road, it's, it's going to grow. Verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you true riches? And if you've not been faithful in, what, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. As you start working jobs, are you going to be the employee that cuts corners, who is robbing your employer of money by when it's, you're getting paid to work, you're not working. You're not working as you ought to. That's not doing honest work. And you're going to be that guy who does that. You're going to be that girl who does that if you are someone who doesn't learn now at your schoolwork to do it honestly. It's going to keep coming up. Okay, Nathan, I need to be an honest worker. Well, what if, like these guys in, in James chapter 5, what if I'm the honest worker and then my boss, because I mean... The odds are probably not many of us are going to not have a boss. I mean, statistically down there, like, we're all going to have a boss. What if the boss wrongs me and I'm in that situation? It's like, well, I'm kind of stuck in what am I supposed to do if I'm just getting robbed of, out of money? It's like, that doesn't seem right. How am I supposed to survive? Maybe I should compromise a little bit and, and, and take advantage. Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. You know that passage. Life is more than food, clothing. Look at the birds of the air. Who provides for them? God does. Obviously, don't put yourself in situations where you know, <laughs> oh, well, this person's frauding me. Okay, well, whatever. I'm just going to do it again. No, but there are going to be times when you are wronged by people. Times by employers that you might be wronged. Well, ultimately, we need to trust God to provide for us. 
Because in James chapter 5, verse 4, it says, the, those individuals being defrauded, crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have heard the ears of the Lord of hosts. God hears it when we go through these challenges. He cares for us. We need to trust him to provide for us. I know that doesn't mean just sitting back, oh, well, God's going to provide for me, so I don't need to get another job. It's like, no. Work and pray, but we need to trust God. We need to, at the end of Matthew 6 there, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Can't be so anxious, oh, God can provide for me with this, this, that. We need to trust God more than we do. Say that to myself as much as, as you guys. And we need to trust God with our lives, with our futures, that he's going to provide. We won't always provide exactly how we would wish we could, wish we wanted to be provided for, but he is faithful to do so. I think a great example of this, I'm reading this book, and I know I've mentioned him before, but George Mueller, like halfway through this book, and man, this guy started out as, as a young pastor, and really early on, he said, hey, I know I get paid by the church, you know, by people's ties. I'm not going to take that. Um, I'm going to refuse um, and trust for God to provide. And we'll, maybe we'll, we'll put a box in the back, and, you know, if people just willingly want to give, they can give. God will put it on their hearts, but God's going to provide for me. And he said, I'm never going to, moving forward, ask another person for money. Um, and, and hey, I'm in a tough situation. I'm just going to trust God to provide. Crazy story. How you see it, he didn't have much. He wasn't living in a high-flying high mansion, high-flying hotel, just enough for day to day. And there were times when he would have dinner with his wife and with his family. It's like, okay, well, this is him knowing this is, this is the last of the bread that we have. Well, we need to pray, and I'm going to pray and trust God to provide for tomorrow. And then tomorrow, God would answer the prayer. And man, someone would come by, hey, I was praying, thinking about you, and hey, here's some money. Or maybe occasionally they would drop off the box and be just right in time for God's to provide for them. And man, there was tens and tens and hundreds of times. Like I'm halfway through this book. It feels like it's already been a hundred times of these examples in his life where he said, I'm going to trust God. He started opening up orphanages, and he said, hey, same philosophy. I'm not going to go out and say, hey, if you can be given to this, I'm going to trust God to provide. Through the duration of this guy's life, he cared for, com combination, over 10,000 children. And you know who didn't know the financial situation? The children, the orphans. The orphans didn't know, well, they whether well, it was a lot of money or whether it was not much. George Mueller was faithful to pray and say, I know that God is going to provide if this is what he wants me to do. Started small, small orphanage and started growing. God kept providing. Well, we need to get a, new, a bigger building. Well, we don't have the money for that. Okay, we're, we're going to pray and start a separate fund and not start fundraising, but just if people are given, people start gave. It's like, man, what a guy who was willing to trust God even with not much that he had. And you've heard the classic stories where served the last bit of food. Oh, what do we do? Um, seems like we're not going to have another meal. Knocking on the door, hey, thought about you and the good work you're doing with the orphanage. Here's some money or here's some bread. It's like, wow. I think he trusted God a lot more than we do. 
where we think, oh man, I've got to have this stored away, I've got to have this place in order, and I'm not saying those things are wrong. We talked about that last week. You should plan for the future. But when we don't have much, when we have little, do we trust God? Oftentimes we're not put in those situations because we live in a, in a fluent area. You know, our parents have good jobs or good enough jobs for us to live. It's like, oh, I don't even have to think about the finances. Well, you should be thankful for that. But that shouldn't allow you to trust solely the finances. You should trust God with those things. Let's keep reading in Matthew, or sorry, James chapter 5, verses 5 to 6. Once again, James writing to these, writing to these Christians, but describing these uh, rich unbelievers, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Oh man, that's such a rich word right there, self-indulgence. What are, what are, what are my desires? What do I want to in, partake of? Oh, I'm just going to give into that. My, the luxuries. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Whoa. So hey, you're living it up in this life, giving into whatever you want. You want that? You take it. Not knowing that you're fattening yourself up for the day of slaughter. I mean, think of that. That's, that's almost like an animal picture right there. I think of like a pig who's eaten up and given, hey, a lot of food. Hey, pig, guess what? Here's some good food. Here's some good food. Knowing, hey, tomorrow we're having some bacon. It's like, oh, yeah. It's like the pig doesn't know. Oh, eating up. Oh, man, this is awesome. This is great. Oink, oink. It's like, I don't know who decided that a pig says oink. It's like, is that what it sounds like? I don't know, oink, it's like eating up this food, it's like, oh man, yeah, life is really good. Not knowing that they're fattening themselves, not seeing down the road, slaughtered. The person who lives for this life, lives for the riches, lives for the wealth, is fattening themselves for ultimately this day of judgment. Verse 6, you, the rich unbeliever, have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Okay, who are we talking about right here? That the rich people have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Oftentimes, I think in some scholars' minds, they think righteous person, okay, that's talking about a singular individual. And if I'm thinking about a righteous person, I'm thinking about the most righteous person, which they think they're talking about Jesus. Okay, well, these rich people condemned and murdered the, the righteous person. Oh, I don't think that's necessarily what's being hinted at here. I think these are talking about righteous people or persons and them being believers. So believers at this time were, so so are these rich unbelievers, are they condemning and are they murdering believers? Potentially, but I think this also could be seen as there, if you connect it with the context of verse 4, that they are defrauding them of wages to provide for themselves and putting them in situations where, man, they don't have things to provide and it's almost like putting them to death. Does that make sense? They're not going around slaughtering, which maybe could have taken place with intense persecution that's taking, which is happening. But I think also just with this passage in particular, it's the defrauding of them. They're saying, hey, we're keeping it for ourselves. This self-indulgence, what I want keeping it away from you, and guess what? You're going to be in some serious harm, potentially life at stake, because you can't provide for yourself. Does that make sense? These rich people saying, it's all about me, not about you, using it for me. That's exactly opposite of what God wants our focus to be. Point number three, we need to be a cheerful giver. Be a cheerful giver. It's not about amassing wealth, one of the sins that God condemns 
these rich people for is this selfish desire for possessions, stuff, money, things, which I think harkens back to the place and the culture that we live in today, where it's such a materialistic society where I care about stuff, 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 stuff. And that's what we focus on. Oh, I need a bigger, bigger car, nicer car, nicer house, nicer this, nicer that, better this. And don't get me wrong, it's not nice to have it's not wrong to have a bigger house or a smaller house. But the thing we also should see, scripture makes clear that we should be sacrificial and cheerful givers, giving of our things to others. Not about self-indulgence, living in luxury for me, whatever I want. No. Caring about the others and saying, how can I provide for those around me? If you're at the Father, Son, Pickleball this morning, we looked at a passage in Scripture that says, hey, if you're not willing to provide for your family, and specifically context of that passage is saying, hey, maybe there's some extended family, maybe these widows in your family that you're not providing for, it's like, man, that's a really bad thing. Awful. Because I guess we should care for those around you, especially Immediate family, believers, should consider and care for those around us. Maybe a passage you probably know very well, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is specifically here in 2 Corinthians 9, talking about the special giving project that's saying, hey, not under compulsion, but God loves someone who's cheerfully give. That's not talking about tithing. I think 1 Corinthians 9, it's funny, 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 9 kind of talk about this, this subject. 1 Corinthians 9 is talking about giving. Those who sow things spiritually for you should reap financially, which that's just say, hey, are we considering, are we thoughtful about giving our money to things like the church, give things like missions that take place. That is something that is a, a non-negotiable. Every believer should be sacrificially giving to their church. And that's even a junior high student. If you get an allowance, if you get birthday money, get Christmas money, guess what? It's important for you to learn the practice now that, hey, this isn't my money. Ultimately, it's God's money given to me as a stewardship, and I need to be sacrificial in giving with it. Well, then also, 2 Corinthians 9, so we're, that's 1 Corinthians 9, talk about tithing, giving to the church. 2 Corinthians 9 is just free will giving. Things pop up. People needing help. Are you going to close your heart to them? Are you willing to sacrifice, give to others? I mean, first, that could be financially, someone in need, extended family. I mean, we need to step up to be a cheerful giver. But even as we think about giving, the first thing that comes into our mind is money, but it's far beyond that too. It could be our stuff that we have. I know that kind of connects with money. Giving of your time. Someone who needs you to be there. Someone who's going through a hard time and they need someone. Are we going to cheerfully give of our time for the sake of that person? Are we going to say, oh no, I've got a busy schedule, I, I can't do that giving of our energy, willing to do hard things for others. 
That should be not something that, oh, I've got to do this. I have to give money to the church, or I, I, I should give this to that, or I should help them out with their homework. It's like, no, cheerfully. All God has done for me, I can think of all that he's done for me. How can I not cheerfully give to others around me? Time, resources, stuff, etc. You can talk about more of what it looks like to give beyond just finances in small groups. You're going to have time to talk about that on Wednesday. But I think this is the perspective in James chapter 5. I know it seems like a, a topic we don't cover very much, especially here in junior high, because, I mean, we don't have jobs. <laughs> we're, we're not making millions of dollars. We're not making thousands of dollars. We're not making hundreds of dollars. Maybe, maybe I got $1 allowance a week. <laughs> but is our focus on things here and now Rather, can we see how wealth doesn't really last? Say that, man, I need to work hard, be honest with my work, and say I'm going to cheerfully give to those around me. That is a new perspective. I think before, maybe we had this wrong perspective that Scripture is helping to clarify. Seek first the kingdom of God. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Be poor in spirit. Focus on the bigger picture. Let's pray. God, we come before you and ask you to change our hearts, change our desire for things, for stuff, for pleasures that we can buy, things, anything that is superior to you. Help us to put away this love of money and possessions that this world promotes, that oftentimes our hearts can be envious of. God, give us a new heart. Help us to think differently about this. Help us to pursue things differently. Help us to think about our future differently. Help us to think about our stuff differently. Think about our money differently, how you would want us to view it. Help us to be hard workers. Help us to trust you as we work hard. And help us to sacrificially give to those around us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.